This is It's a Long Story, a Sydney Opera House podcast that uncovers the lives and stories behind the ideas. I'm Edwina Throsby. That's how change happens. It's a gradual thing. Um, and it's a thing about uh, losing fear over something that you may have been previously scared of. When Liz Jackson woke up one morning back in 2012, unable to feel her legs, her life radically changed direction. Diagnosed with a neuromuscular disease, Liz left her successful career in television to become a designer and activist devoted to improving design for disabled people across the world. Her blog, The Girl with the Purple Cane, and her organisation, The Disabled List, brings the unique insights and skills of disabled people and designers into the broader design conversation. Jackson, welcome to the Sydney Opera House and to It's a Long Story. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. If there was one pivotal moment in your life, it was March the 30th, 2012. What happened that morning? Um, I have a, a nine-pound dog, and I um, he was sort of prancing, so I, I went to get out of bed to, to let him out, and I uh, fell. Um, and it was because I had, I had woken up to uh, a strange neuromuscular condition that had caused profound weakness, and so my legs weren't there to catch me. So you think you're going to get out of bed like any other day yeah. and your legs just aren't there and suddenly you're on the floor. Yeah. What did you think? I thought, okay, th- th- this will pass. Um, and it actually took some convincing. It, w- it took you know, calling various people and, and some nudging to go to the hospital because I wasn't in any physical pain. There was, it was just simply things weren't working right. Was that like, like you wanted to walk to the bathroom and you couldn't properly or...? Yeah, so I th- I remember the back of my calves were um, they were hard as a rock, like um, and they they were pulsating. Um, you could just watch them them pulse. Um, that was painful. My the, my left eye it was bloodshot and it was turned in a little bit. Um, I it's it's it was just this it was this fascinating thing. But even when I woke up to it, I think that there wasn't it wasn't a complete surprise. I remember in the weeks leading up to it, I'd been having this recurring dream. So I live in in New York City. And the recurring dream was is that I was on 10th Avenue walking toward the river at 42nd Street. And as you walk toward the river, it the wind picks up. And in my dream, as the wind had picked up, I was having a hard time making forward progression through the wind. I was stuck in place even as I tried to walk. Um, and when I had woken up that that particular morning, um, that was exactly what had happened. Is I had drop foot, uh, which means that you know I don't have that push off uh, among other other things. And so, um, it was just it was fascinating, and and I think I I knew before I knew. It's like your subconscious kind of had the had the inside scoop. Yeah. So you did go to the hospital. Yes. What did they tell you? Um, so they they did a a, t- a few tests in the EMG, which is. Um, they test your nerve conduction. Uh, it, it turned up something, uh, but they weren't entirely clear on what it is. They, at the time, they thought it was something called Guillain-Barre, um, and they said it would go away over time, um, and it did. Uh, it went, and w- went away for a short period of time, and then it came back, and, and that became a pattern. So you have these episodes that kind of got closer and closer together that were followed by... They happened once a month. It was um, uh, when I got my period. Huh. Um, and I would flare up, and then throughout the rest of the month, I would, I would heal. Uh, so I think because there was a hormonal component to it, I think it was easier for doctors to dismiss me. Right. I think that probably happens quite a lot to, to women that go in with these kind of complaints. Absolutely. How long did it take you to get your final diagnosis? It took um, well over a year. It was the worst year of my life. Um, 
I went to the Cleveland Clinic where a doctor told me I was faking it. I went to the Mayo Clinic. Um, I went to every hospital in New York. Um, and it wasn't until I found a, a young neurologist who I call Super Neuro. She finally agreed the, the test that I had been asking for, which was a nerve and muscle biopsy that she would give me. It was just finding somebody who believed me. And what did she tell you? Well, it's interesting because she's become a, a source of sort of strength and warmth in my life. But um, after I, you know, after I got the test, uh, she said that the thing that I thought I had, I had, and it's uh, something called onion bulb formations. And so, when you look at a nerve, the metal part of the nerve is that's the axon. If that was like a wire, and then the the rubber coating, that would be the the fatty coating, which is the myelin sheath. So the the axon sort of transmits information. The myelin sheath protects it. My body was attacking the axon. It was causing or the myelin sheath to wrap around the nerve. And so when a neurosurgeon went in and cut it and looked at it from the side, it looked like onion bulbs from the formation of the the wrapping of the, the myelin sheath. And so I have onion bulb formations. Wow. And it's also known sort of more broadly, right, as idiopathic neuropathy. I have a version of something called chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. Like that's the long term, but I have a variant of it only because the guy that created CIDP because he's still alive and he's very stubborn, he says there can't be variants. And so the difference between my what I have is that because my body is, talk- is attacking the axon instead of attacking the myelin sheath, um, I can't have CIDP. And so I, the doctors say I have idiopathic neuropathy, which basically means without known cause. And so I'm sort of left without a diagnosis, even though we know what's happening. Huh. But you do have a set of sort of symptoms from this that you that you now live with. Yes. Um, so what sort of things are they? That first year after I'd gotten my diagnosis, SuperNeuro put me on this treatment. It's uh, intravenous immunoglobulin. Um, it's an expensive treatment. In the United States, it's well over a million dollars a year that insurance covers, um, hopefully. And while it, it may have helped in some ways, we continued to notice this, this progression where once a month I was flaring up. And so one day we just said, like, what if we put me on birth control and, and get rid of my period? And so we did, and um, I haven't had IVIG since. I've you know, been fairly steady. The other thing that um, has happened since you had this visited on you is that you now need a cane to walk. Mm-hmm. So when I got out of the hospital, um, I needed eyeglasses and a cane. And I remember when I was in the hospital, I was thinking that I wanted to go back to school shopping for my needs. But I was sort of thinking, well, this is a chance to go out and find products that reaffirm my identity. I wasn't, it was never my body that bothered me. It was, it was, I was happy up until the point at which I started shopping for a cane. And when I realized I had no choice, um, that was what was devastating to me. So what sort of canes were on offer to you? When I was in the hospital, I got, it was a stainless steel adjustable cane. It had sort of a rubber tip and handle. Mm. Um, it's the the cane. It's been designed for function rather than for style. Exactly. And that was what I found online. And I searched, you know, a bit, but it was, it, the results were so painful to me that I, I didn't want to go back and look. Right. And so I didn't. And why were they painful, do you think? Because it didn't look like me. It wasn't that my body wasn't me. Like, it was this thing, and I struggled with it deeply. And it was a process. You know, you get ready for the day, you look in the mirror, you look like yourself, and then right as you're heading out the door, you have to grab this thing. Suddenly, your whole morning routine has been disrupted, and you're no longer the person that you'd sort of been working toward when you go to head out. Mm-hmm. And the way that you're representing is not the way that you would choose to re- represent yourself. In. Exactly. Mm. It seems to me that the cane kind of embodies the two things that really changed for you on that morning in March 2012. Things changed for you personally, but things also changed for you politically. Yeah. What did 
having a revised body due to your sense of justice? There were multiple things that were happening over that that period of time. So for the first time in my life, I wasn't believed. Then I had lost the ability to choose. And then I was sort of expected to kind of take on certain paths. I also felt that um, because I was physically weaker, that there was this presumption that I was emotionally weaker. And then I think the other thing was is that I would oftentimes... I slept a lot and I was oftentimes drifting in and out of sleep. And I think it was this, for the first time in my life, I had time. And in that time, I realized what I was actually doing in my head was writing. And so it took me a little while to kind of take these things that I was saying in my head and start to get them out on paper. That might have been the thing that pushed me over the edge was just simply this this time and discovering my creativity through that. I mean, you've you've said before or written before, whatever damage, and I'm quoting you here, whatever damage I may have suffered or continue to suffer has slowed the erratic pace of my thoughts and movement. And it's not a bad thing. I used to be the quickest speaking, most anxious person you'd ever met. Now, I have moments of absolute calm and clarity. I write now. I didn't write before. Before I got sick, I was too impatient to write. Yeah. So I I found sort of solace. I found purpose in this process, which I'm now actually starting to kind of feel a little bit, a little bit tortured by because um, it was something that was not expected of me. And now I think that there are increasingly expectations of me. But more than that is I think in many ways I have gotten healthier. And so I am back to that slightly more erratic pace. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I have found that the writing process is one of... um, uh, moments of um, sort of anxious sort of expulsion uh, followed by uh, an increase of te- tension and then sort of a release. It's not it's not a flow as it as it once was. And I'm 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 in the I'm in a place in my life right now where I'm wondering if I can ever get that back. So said every journal writer yep. throughout all time. No, that's the truth. <laughs> it's it's fascinating. You kind of get yourself into a situation, and then you're like, okay, now I actually have to figure out how to do it. <laughs> take us right back to the beginning. Yeah. You were born in Ohio in the American Midwest. What sort of family were you born into? We lived in a, a suburban town of a sort of industrial area. Um, so we were very privileged for that town. It was My, my family was fairly conservative. Uh, they're very polite, good, kind people, even though their politics can frustrate me at times. And I always just sort of felt slightly askew. I grew up as a country club kid. Um, so what do you mean by that? I, my dad, my my whole family golfs. Um, in the country club, you would have to dress a certain way, meaning you couldn't wear jeans, and so I would have to wear khakis. And I always felt like I was always trying to figure out what can I do to sort of feel more like myself in this situation. Um, and so I would always find ways to sort of bend the rules. Feeling slightly askew, I, I think I found um, that I really enjoyed the tension of of kind of pushing back in, in the ways that I could. Can you think about specific examples of the ways that you bent the rules or pushed back? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> That's funny. There's a story from my childhood that's coming to mind, and I don't even think this is this may not be on topic. It's just the first one that popped to mind. So um, my grandpa came over, I think it was two and a half or three, um, and he brought me and my older brother a donut, and I had been savoring my donut all day, just waiting for the perfect time to eat it, whereas my brother had eaten his right away. Um, and I walk in the kitchen uh, in the middle of the afternoon to discover him eating my donut, and I say to him, 
I hope you choke on that effing donut. Um, <laughs> and you were three. And I was three. And so I think I think my parents probably knew then that I was <laughs> a certain way. <laughs> um, but I didn't say effing. I actually said the word. Yeah, no, I, 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 I gathered that. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been disappointed if you had. <laughs> Um, how do you get on with your with your parents and your brother and sister now? Um, so I um, I think I have a deep um, love and appreciation for them. Um, wh- when I was sick, I really struggled with my parents, particularly my dad, because when we went to the Cleveland Clinic, um, the and you have to understand, like the doctor looked like my dad, right? He was a professional. Like it was um, it was a, a sort of a man talking to a man, and it was this this man was saying that this isn't real; it's in your head. And so because we were all having a hard time making sense of things. Um, it, I think it was easy for my dad to to believe the doctor. And so that was a really painful process for me. But at the same time, it was also an incredibly p- painful process for him. And it's been one, I think, it may uh, sort of be one of his greatest life lessons that things aren't always as, as they seem. And, and process and sort of expertise is also not always completely accurate. Not as infallible. Yeah, and so I think... I wish that we'd never gone through it. I think it caused me um, more trauma and pain than I could ever begin to describe. But I think that he also experienced that trauma and pain and that we've gotten through it together. I think we have something really special. And how was high school for you? It's funny, when I started on this path, one of my biggest fears was, is how are people that knew me up until that point, how, what are they going to think and how are they going to feel? And I, I felt a lot of shame about it. Um, what it, sort of shame? Because I wasn't doing something a certain way, right? That I wasn't, um, you know, I come from, a, again, it's sort of a sleepy, um, you know, fairly conservative town. Um, and I was, in some ways, it sort of felt like I was acting out. Um, and so it, it took me a while to kind of grow comfortable with that because, um, and while there's many people that I grew up with that are doing really incredible things, I, I don't know that there's necessarily another one who is acting out in the way that I sort of feel like I am, where you're really just just throwing yourself out there. You're a long um, way from the country club. Exactly. While high school is wonderful, again, many best friends, and, and it's a good town with good people, it wasn't me, right? And so I had to f- grow comfortable enough with myself to just finally let go and be like, okay, like... I'm finally going to be myself. I'm going to be who I am. And um, and then what I've noticed in the last couple of years, especially this past year, is that the the way that people that I grew up with are, are very impressed by it and, and, and wish that they could be like that. And what I realize is, is that this is what small towns do, is they sort of make you think things are a certain way. And, and it, it, can you sort of reject aspects of your childhood enough to be the person that you were sort of born to be. Is it rejecting aspects of your childhood or is it it's, it's, channeling them? Maybe it's channeling them. Like, again, I'm not rejecting anything. Like, it, if I, you know, any person that grows up in that town, I I think it's a great place to grow up. I just, I don't think there's anywhere in the world that you can't, it, that you can grow up and, and, and fully realize yourself. Like, that's, realizing yourself is the process of rejecting these these sort of assumptions. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's cyclical. So you left school and you went to college to study TV production. Yeah. Um, why did you choose TV? Uh, because that was what was in front of me, right? Um, it was the it was the culture and the expression that I, I knew. Um, because I was in a town that was very removed from it, it also felt otherworldly. And it, it kind of gave me something to aspire to. It, it was interesting when I, like, I remember all my friends when they were going to school, nobody knew what they wanted to do, like, I knew what I wanted to do, and I found a school that would allow me to do it. Um, I went to Ohio University because Matt Lauer went there. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good reason. Yeah, and I was like, well, if he did it, great. Um, And once I graduated, I think it was four days later, I moved out to L.A. 
One of the other things that happened when you were in college, um, and you've written about this, you said, when I was in college, someone asked me, when you walk into a room, who do you notice first, boys or girls? I said, girls. I've been out ever since. It was as though someone had flipped a switch. Yeah. He was, um, we were working at, a, working at a bookstore and he was actually a priest who had been kicked out of the church for uh, uh, deciding to live with his partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was gay. His male partner. Yep. Yeah. And I think, I think it, there were many ways in, in my life in which I was working up to it. And he just asked it at the the right point in time. And, um, and there was just absolutely no denying it. And I, I got something that has been a profound learning experience for me and something that I continually think over is, is when I went to school my freshman year, I, I, as soon as I got there, I realized my RA was gay. And I was profoundly homophobic, uh, cruel and homophobic. I would order pizzas and sort of, you know, prank her with them at her door. And I, I, was, I was really, um, I was unkind. Why do you think you were so cruel to her? I, I think I was frightened. It was easier to be that than to be uh, open-minded. And and so I, I, I realize now that much of the stuff that I, I find really incredibly painful about the world that we live in right now is actually stuff that is my impulse. In many ways, I, I can be a bully, right? Like I, even, in, it's, it's so funny because I do work in inclusion and diversity and yet like there's no there's no bending my will. Um, and I've been so lucky that I've I've found ways to kind of harness it in ways that are productive and useful. Um, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't come from that same place. And if somebody gets in your way, you'll you'll get them out of your way regardless. Oh yeah. Yeah. Again, I come from a competitive family. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of sort of competition in that. There's a lot of self-righteousness. Um, and I think that's another thing, too, is is that, you know, it, when I look at my humanity, there's um, a lot of negative characteristics that I've, I've really worked at to try and use them in a, a positive manner. But it, it doesn't change the fact that my impulses are very human. And so I really struggle... In, and this is sort of off track, but I really struggle in this space where that you know people sort of perceive that I'm doing good work or that I'm doing God's work or that it's really inspiring. When I think to myself, like, no, like I'm, you know, I'm I'm um, uh, a cruel person who has learned to leverage it in a a, a useful, uh, productive manner. How interesting. Yeah. Did you ever apologize to the RA down the track? Did you ever? Have- uh, senior year, I went back. Somebody said, oh, there's a gay group. I walk in. She's running it. Um, <laughs> of course so she, she is. Had, she had her moment. Um, and, yeah, you know, I th- and I apologized. Um, but I, it's interesting because she's probably never thought about me since, and I think about her every day. Mm. Was it hard coming out to your family? Uh, yeah, I, I avoided it as long as possible. I was actually working for um, Ellen DeGeneres at the time. Um, and my parents came to town in L.A. Um, and so I was I was her second assistant. And her first assistant, who I called Grandpa, he was this guy, Craig, um, he kept calling me during the dinner. And he was like, have you done it yet? I'm like, I'm getting <laughs> drunker. Um, and so I think that there was this sort of amusement on the end of, like, this like, group of people that were working at Ellen. like Working oh my for the world's most famous lesbian, yeah, basically. Exactly. And so, like, I think that there was just this profound, like... Um, it, it's like, of course, that's how I come out, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, it was fine. Um, again, my dad thinks in terms of, um, he's, you know, money. And, and so he said, if you ever need money, let me know. And that was his way of telling me that he was okay with it. I mean, <laughs> So what, it, it, if ever you need money to support your new lesbian lifestyle? Or like, what do you mean? <laughs> I should actually, I should have been like, I need, I need money. <laughs> <laughs> and your mom? Um, she was happy with it. I think she has... 
over time, um, I think she, it's funny. I've never saw my mom cry, but I, I think she has these moments of sort of tearful regret that maybe it wasn't easier for her. Maybe it, regret that maybe it wasn't easier for me to come out to her. Um, and that regret that it took time. But then again, I was homophobic. Like, it took me time. And so um, I, I see how some of this stuff, uh, my sexuality in the ways that I've been other and my my disability and my not being believed, like, I see how it um, eats away at, at my parents. And it just makes me realize um, nobody is in this alone. It just feels very powerful to me. It's my parents are conservative, and yet they have taken on much more liberal stances on the things that I'm, I'm um, I identify as and am passionate about. It's not because they have to, but because it now feels obvious to them. Mm. That's how change happens. It's a gradual thing, um, and it's a thing about uh, losing fear over something that you may have been previously scared of. So, what was it like working for Ellen? It was great. I mean, is she as cool as everybody in the world wants her to be? I well, I think like that's the thing is is like I, I never know how to answer that question because to me, I think she was very much a, a business person. Um, so I worked for Martha Stewart after I worked for Ellen, and I quickly learned that Martha Stewart loses her temper. Um, <laughs> I quickly learned, um, but with Ellen. Um, she never lost her temper. Um, you knew that you, you would know she was having an off day. You know you would know if she was frustrated, um, but it was never cruel. Um, but you always knew to be sort of. Um, you, you knew that you had to work. Uh, she had a very strong work ethic. Um, and so, like, yeah, she had moments where she was funny. But again, she was my boss. I'm somebody who's always sought to be just on the outside. I've never wanted and I've never been comfortable as sort of an insider. And so I, I feel like if I can be just slightly outside, like that's where I can leverage myself and, and do my best work. And so, you know, I think that's probably what I was seeking the entire time I was working there is, was that sweet spot. So after you left working for Martha Stewart, you had a stint at Airbnb. Yeah. Was that really when you got interested in branding? I think, I think I've always been interested in branding. I think... Um, Again, I and I would actually attribute this more to my days at Ellen and really seeing like what lands in Middle America. Like, how is it that you have this gay woman that they would very much these these housewives would very much vote politically against, and yet they sort of aspire to be her. I would see the the ways that this show achieved it through a certain aesthetic, and I think in my work, like I think that's the thing that I've always tried to replicate to some extent. So, what were the principles of that aesthetic? Do you think that worked for Ellen, like that made it accessible? Humor. And simplicity. It's, it's, I think it's just those two things. It's, um, so this is something that really informs your politics now, right? Listening to what you've said in the past and reading what you've written um, and getting to know you as well, that one of the things that, that you're looking for is almost a way to brand disability. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing is, is, is that, um, you know, disability by nature is, is basically unbranded. I, my organization, I call it the disabled list because if you look at every aspect of sport, there's only one spot where there's never been a sponsor, right? And it's the disabled list. Like to be disabled is really to mean to be sort of without aesthetic, without branding, without design, you know, and all these various things. The space for it feels wide open. Like you can, right now, like I'm working in an area where you can do anything and it'll have never been done before. And it just, it, to me, it feels like complete freedom. How do you create a brand for such a diverse community? You know, I think about various aspects of it. So often, 
I think when spaces look to brand, they look for some sort of like physical manifestation of disability. But the very prospect of disability is that there isn't one singular image. You need to kind of focus away from the the person and realize this is actually nothing to do with the person. It's to do with a thing. I mean, it's almost like some of the work that you do around disability is kind of almost like creating an anti-brand or something, you know. I mean, I I think back to the late, great Stella Young, who I worked with on a TEDx mm. talk in this very building. Um, you know, she, she talks about inspiration porn. And a lot of stuff around disabled people traditionally has been of this kind of nature, you know. Um, you should be inspired by the fact that this person managed to get out of bed while being disabled, yes. you know, and and, and 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 this kind of extremely patronising tone around this, which a lot of um, disability activists worldwide are pushing very, very hard against. I think that's why I stepped away from fashion and more into the realm of uh, like the kind of greater design uh, ideals is because anything that sort of came up that was where somebody tried to make disability fashionable, I found myself usually pretty much grossed out by it. Like it just never, it always rubbed me the wrong way. And I realize in everything I do, and I think this is why I, I thrive so much in this world is because everything I do, I'm searching for the absence of trend. By absence of trend, do you mean a sort of timelessness? Uh, perhaps. So I think a lot in terms of the bell curve. And so like usually what you have is, is you have somebody who's in normal, you know, at the top of the curve and aspirational branding sort of convinces them that they can buy something and just sort of slide into this, you know, super realm of super ability or super aesthetic or whatever. But when you are disabled and you're starting at the bottom of the curve, it's, um, it, it so odd, like historically branding has told us okay like we are just trying to climb into normal and who wants to make that effort to climb that height just to achieve normality and it it just it doesn't make sense to me and so I don't think that it is uh, correct to pretend that we are at the top of the curve just sliding into normal as people are trying to now sort of claim that we are because we're not. And I also don't think that um, we should be asked to make the slog. I think we just need to be allowed to exist as we are and not try and move on the bell curve anywhere. And this is one of your other big points that, you know, is is, is shared with a lot of um, disabled activists and, and people in that community is the difference between for and with. A big design museum in New York City asked me to um, help them curate an exhibit. And when I first started with them, my I said to them, I mean, you know, I'm happy to kind of happy to help you find product, but I only am interested so much is that my disabled friends are involved and disabled people are give, given voice to. And by the end of that process, what I realized is is that there was absolutely you can go into the exhibit and not even know that disabled people exist. We're just not there. How is that? It's very sort of true to these sort of representations of disability. You know, I think again, what I in even in the process, they would say that they didn't have a budget to hire somebody disabled to you know work through the process with them, and because they didn't have a budget, they would also say, "Look at all this we're doing for you without this budget." Because everything that has always been done in the disability space creates saviors. You don't need to sort of kind of check yourself in the process and. Out of my frustration from this, I decided to Google the phrase design for disability, and I saw that it yields more than twice as many search results as just disability design. And so I had come up with this phrase design with disability, which, you know, we've never gotten credit for our contributions, even though 
our innovations have been known to change the world, we are perceived as recipients of design. And it's not because we lack any sort of ability. It's because we've been excluded from the design process. So what are you doing to change that? So uh, a few things. I created my organization, The Disabled List, uh, and it is an actual list of creative disabled people who are available to consult. Um, and the reason being is, is brands oftentimes say, we don't know where to find disabled people. And I'm like, well, you know, here's disabled people. Here we are. Um, but I've also created uh, a program, uh, a fellowship called With, which um, partners, again, creative disabled people with top design studios and uh, creative spaces so that we can start facilitating this process of designing with. Um, and then the final part of it is I've started uncovering these histories of, um, of disabled people who previously hadn't gotten credit for things that they've done. In, in the design world particularly, yeah. right? Yeah. What's an example of that? Because there are heaps, aren't there? There's heaps. Um, so Tommy Hil Hilfiger claims to be the first person to ever create an adaptive clothing line. Um, but what I actually discovered is, is a disabled woman named Helen Cookman who wrote a book in 1958 called Functional Fashions for the Physically Handicapped, and she ended up partnering with brands such as Levi and Lacoste and Sears. When you see much of the adaptive technologies that are out in the world right now, it actually came from Helen, and, and nobody knows that. As well as language around words like for and with, which I think, you know, are really important, there's a whole other level of language around disability, which actually goes so far as to include something as simple as the word disabled. Yeah. What are the politics around that word? Language in the disability space is really tenuous right now. Like you can start with something as simple as the say the word campaign. So like in society, people tend to avoid... Uh, the word disability and instead kind of veer toward phrases like differently abled and special needs. What disabled people realize in trying to sort of take ownership of the term is, is that whenever somebody tries to avoid saying the word, it increases the stigma of the identity we're so proud of. And so we're just starting at the, the very beginning which is um, to say the word disability. It's um, I actually recommend if you're having a hard time saying the word disability, just drop the F-bomb before it. It makes it a lot easier. <laughs> um but then you get once you get into disability politics, there's these debates about is it person first, meaning that the person comes before the disability, or is it identity first, meaning that it's a disability community or a disabled person? And I'm actually, I so am, hang on, it's 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 individuality versus community. Yeah, and so I I actually was person first. I was a person with disability up until the time that Trump got elected, and then I became a disabled person. And the reason I realized that is because my power comes from being one of many. We are politically powerless people who are coming together and building political power through uh, initiatives such as Crypt the Vote and uh, there's another one called Suck It Ableism and all these other uh, sort of hashtags and we're doing it so that we can articulate our powerlessness so that we can actually enact real change. Mm. Um, and so that's why I'm identity first. But then again, if somebody came to me and said that they were a person with disability, I would never correct them. When it comes to disability, anybody can feel like an expert, right? Because disabled people have never been able to be the expert. And so it's sort of re taking a re-ownership of who actually gets to be the experts in disability. In an article in the New York Times earlier this year, you said, we are the original life hackers. Yeah. That, um, that article got read extremely widely. But what did you mean by the original life hackers? Disabled people, we spend our lives cultivating an intuitive creativity because we're forced to navigate a world that isn't built for our bodies. We are deeply creative. And um, 
and it 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 it's been so interesting to learn some of the innovations that have really kind of come out of that creativity. Um, one of my favorite stories is that of Wayne Westerman, who is this guy who, in 1998, he had some carpal tunnel and some tendonitis, um, and he decided that he wanted to create a technology that would allow him to continue working. And so he created this technology called Fingerworks. And then in 2005, Steve Jobs bought it. It's um, the iPhone touchscreen. Mm. And so, you know, what I realized is this isn't a one-off thing, but it actually exists in so many facets of the world. Um, and uh, it if we can take hold of a phrase like, or an idea like we are a life hacker, um, then can we start to see value in our creativity? And so I actually see it as a bit of a rallying cry, um, you know, more than a sort of something that's placed upon a person. You are a very passionate activist now. Yes. You've learned. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I picked it up. I noticed. Yeah. Do you think that had you not become disabled you would have found another cause? Or do you think that there was something particular about disability politics that has motivated you in a way that nothing else would have? Um, I think this is what people don't understand is that I love disability. Like, it is my my lifeblood. Um, it is what I eat, drink, think. Um, it's how I see the world. Um I honestly, I don't think that I would have found another thing, and I think I would have been very lost in my life. Um, I just think I think this is a convergence of some very powerful forces, um, and I'm one of the luckiest people in the whole world. Um, I can only explain it as much as that. You've written, My illness and my disability left me scarred and traumatized. It wasn't a grateful process, but amazingly enough, it's probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah. Um... I I was um, so the, I ended up finding my way out of my depression um, after um, I discovered a, a purple cane, and I ended up meeting the designer of my purple cane a few years later. Her name is Re Norgard, and um, she through her and through a variety of other people, um, I have um, really built uh, a profound uh, design education. Um, and I think it's always there's always a tension in whoever it is that I'm sort of working with or around um, because I don't make it easy on people ever. But I was with her about a week ago, and before we parted, well, she said two things. The first thing she said was that she saw a quote that was something along the lines of, I would lie to you if I could, but I can't. And she's like, that made me think of you. And then she told me she was really proud of me. And um, it, it's um, I'm still not over the fact that she said that to me. I have incredible people in my life who um, allow me to um, never let them get too comfortable. Um, and they uh, believe in me. And um, I just I, I, I wish I could express how much desire I have to do right by those people and to the disability community because, you know, for whatever reason, I, I do get opportunities to have a voice, and um, and it's just it's it's um, it's a, it feels big. It all comes at a personal cost, I think. Whenever you take a big, strong stand about something that you feel really strongly about, and whenever your job becomes having to convince people that might think differently all the time. Yeah. That's really tiring. <laughs> it's that damn doctor from the Cleveland Clinic. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Well, Liz, 
we're out of time. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for coming and yeah. talking to me. On, yeah. It's a long story. And yeah. thank you for coming to the Opera House. Yeah, and thank you for um, um, opening yourself to me and the disabled perspective. And, and I hope next year on your stage I'll be one of my peers. <laughs> I think there's a good chance of that. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Liz. Thank you so much. Liz Jackson joined us for Antidote in 2018. Watch videos from her events at the festival on our YouTube channel and you can find the link in our show notes. It's a Long Story is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program. We're produced and edited by Susie Anderson, recorded by Joshua Craig and John Gardner, mastering and additional editing by Riley Edwards. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan with research by Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Thanks to Jacqueline Booten, Fleur Mitchell and Nerida Ross. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.